A reading from God's Word in Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Bohab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. And now from 2 Samuel eleven twenty six through 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, Bart Garrett, the lead pastor, and just delighted to have you with us this uh, Advent season, whether you're tuning in online or here in our midst. And um, you should know, when I was in graduate school, uh, my wife and I lived in Florida, where it was, of course, very hot, and um, we had no money, so we hardly ever turned our air conditioning on. And uh, we had this one friend who would come in, and he was a pretty large dude, and he would always put $10 on our counter and say, please turn the air conditioning on. So um, you, you've been cold this holiday season, and it's not because we're cheap, it's because half of our HVAC system is broken in here. So it will be repaired, but um, bear with us as you're bundled up in these uh, weeks together. Um, you know, in my hometown, I grew up uh, living in the same town as um, my mother's sisters and my grandparents. And so my mother was flanked by two sisters, she was the middle of three daughters, and uh, My favorite holiday tradition was every Christmas Eve we had uh, what we called a a progressive dinner. Until I was about 14, I thought it was called the aggressive dinner. But uh, we would go to each of the sisters' houses, and they would argue each year over which one had hosted which thing. But at the first, we would have appetizers, and then we would have soup and salad, and then we would have dinner. But the dessert and presents always happened at my grandparents' house. So for me and for my sister and for our cousins, it was this exercise in waiting every Christmas Eve to get to the desserts and to get to the presents. And there's a sense in which uh, that is what Advent is all about. We are uh, waiting as we anticipate the Christmas season, just as our forefathers and foremothers did with the birth of Christ and just as we anticipate Christ's second coming. And so WCPC joins the church, both historic and global, when we sort of dim the lights and slow down and push off the festivity just a bit to prepare ourselves for the gravity of this moment. As I said last week, Christians believe that the God who created the cosmos— became one of us. So November the 15th, uh, we reached 8 billion people uh, in our global population. So for each person 
there are more than 125 trillion stars in the observable universe. That's 125 with 12 zeros. And Christians believe that the God who created all of that magnificence and all of that brilliance became one of us right here. And not only that, God doesn't show up in the right family with prominence and prestige and privilege, but instead on the wrong side of the tracks, born into a family tree with really rough roots. And we've been highlighting this as a teaching team because we want you to know that Jesus turns nobodies into somebodies and outsiders into insiders. But I'm also highlighting this because we can tend to focus, if we're not careful, we can tend to focus on the fruits of Jesus' divinity rather than the roots of Jesus' humanity. And I want to illustrate that uh, with one of my very favorite characters in all of film, uh, Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, played by Will Ferrell at his prime 15 years ago. Ricky Bobby is this uh, race car driver who never loses. And there's this great scene when he's praying over the meal with his family. And he starts his prayer with, Dear Lord, Baby Jesus. Dear infant tiny Jesus, and Carly, his wife, interrupts and she says, hey, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a little bit off-putting and odd to pray to a baby. And then Ricky Bobby says, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And then he goes on and he prays, dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up hands, dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly but still omnipotent. See, we can become one step removed from the humanity of Jesus. We want the fruits of the divinity without contending with the roots of humanity. We want sort of pie in the sky floating by Jesus or the majestic ethereal Jesus or the Jesus who even if he becomes a baby is going to wear golden fleece diapers, right? But we also have Jesus in the muck and the mire. Jesus as a baby who would have pooped in those golden fleece diapers who would have belched at the table as a teenager. For some of us, it's more difficult that Jesus defecated than he resurrected. But what we miss out on when all of our attention drifts to the fruits of Jesus' divinity is Jesus who is the one who truly connects to our plight, to our pain. The one who is a man of sorrows, who is acquainted with grief. These very rough roots of Jesus' family tree return us to this Jesus. So we get in this family tree four non-Jewish women, which would have been unheard of in a Jewish genealogy. And what we even get in some of these stories is that the Jewish men, who are supposed to be the heroes of the story, are the villains. And that's what happens today in the story of Uriah's wife and David. It's a story of a king who takes advantage of his power to sleep with another man's wife and then has that man killed. So here's the big idea this morning. The gritty good news is that God offers hope and healing to survivors 
and forgiveness and grace to perpetrators, to wrongdoers. See, our sense of justice today makes it difficult for us to embrace both of those things, hope and healing and forgiveness and grace. But life is complicated. And if we're honest this morning, in our midst are people uh, who are in a lifelong process of healing over what has been done to them. And there are those of us who are also in the midst of guilt and a shame for what we've done to others. And this Christmas message is actually for both of those types of people. And so I want to look at each. First, hope and healing for survivors. And in order to do that, I've got to deconstruct a couple mythologies about this story. Uh, The first mythology is that David and Bathsheba is a love story. So back in 1951, there was a film entitled David and Bathsheba. David was played by Gregory Peck. Some of you will remember the name. It was a love story of the kind of Antony and Cleopatra. And then 30 years later, 1985, there's a movie called King David, and Richard Gere plays King David, and Richard Gere saves Bathsheba from spousal abuse. That's what the movie's all about. Well, there's another mythology to deconstruct, and it's that of Bathsheba as the seductive seductive temptress, the adulterer wearing the scarlet A. So Joseph Heller writes a novel in the mid-'80s entitled God Knows, and he puts these words in Bathsheba's mouth. Listen to this. I made up my mind to meet you, a king and all that. Who could resist? I bathed on my roof every evening to attract you. Even biblical scholars say things like this. 50 years ago, one scholar writes, no one of good moral character could have acted as she did in her seduction and conquest of David. She doubtless exposed herself that the king might be tempted. She willingly came to the palace when she was sent for and conspired with David for the murder of her husband. See, this is despicable, how we twist and shape and retell the stories of survivors to suit our sensibilities, but the Bible will have none of it. The Bible is not a uh, once upon a time fairy tale, a happily ever after ending. The Bible is gritty. And I want to be sensitive to how I communicate that this morning. I even consulted a dear therapist friend as I was thinking about this sermon. But it's important to state here that Bathsheba is a survivor of sexual assault. In fact, Scripture never once condemns her. In 2 Samuel 12, the only one declared evil is David. But Bathsheba, like her husband, had very little choice but to obey the king's summon or to risk death in defying him. She can't appeal to the law because the king was above the law. Kings were entitled to protected immunity. And so she faced a tragedy and a trauma that would be difficult for us to comprehend today. Sexual assault, with it the loss of the rights of her own body, the murder of her husband, the stillbirth of her child, the loss of her home and her family, all because of one man's petty lust. 
Yet, as the story unfolds, she's hardly a victim of her circumstances. In fact, Bathsheba embodies the strength of a survivor, and this honored God and changed her world. There's much healing, and there's much hope in her story. As it unfolds, she becomes the heroine in Israel, advocating for her son Solomon to become king, while the rest of David and his family was just jostling for power. And Solomon, as some of you may know, penned most of the Proverbs, and we can no doubt hear Bathsheba's wisdom undergirding them when he writes things like, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Protect the rights of all who are destitute. Now, I must mention here a tension that I have felt uh, intensely all week as I've been praying about this sermon over how to address issues like assault and survival, because on the one hand, I want to say, it's Christmas. I don't want to be the Grinch who steals Christmas. I don't want to be Scrooge. I want to focus on cider and cocoa and cookies and candy canes and candles and everything else that starts with C. But on the other hand, these things must be addressed in church because scripture speaks to them and many of us experience them and in fact i'm being less grinch and more matthew because matthew begins his christmas story with these stories so i also feel the tension of not being able to say as much as i would like to say in a 22-minute sermon on hope and healing for survivors. Um, let me acknowledge that. Uh, in fact, uh, hope and healing in the life of a survivor may take years to cultivate. Physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual. It's a bold work that can ultimately turn surviving into thriving, but it's a hard work. And so I offer this very humbly this morning. If you're needing this depth of soul care, encourage for this work please allow our church to help you we have a counseling center on site our deacons were up front earlier they're prepared to help get you in the right places to help you with the help that you need uh, what i can offer you this morning in this moment emanates from the life of bathsheba and it's this message god has not abandoned you god loves you God has the power to redeem even the darkest places in your life. And your soul, tended to with care and through the power of God's Spirit, can become fertile soil for hope and healing to sprout and grow in your life again. And not only that, your healing from these experiences may even become a salve one day for the wounds of others as you emerge as a wounded healer. And on this point, I need to point out one more thing. There's only one person mentioned in this whole genealogy who is mentioned without a name. And it's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. So, don't miss the point here. We don't say how insulting. Instead, we say, um, as Matthew, I think, is doing, uh, this is all about not Matthew slamming Bathsheba, but disgracing David. It's not a snub on Bathsheba, it's a verdict on David. He's calling out David's grievous sin. He's saying, Uriah, the one you murdered, and his wife, not yours, but his, the one you assaulted. And yet, we learn 
in these very rough roots of Jesus' family tree that no one, even King David, is beyond the forgiveness and grace of God. That's the second piece of this big idea. The gritty good news is that God offers hope and healing for survivors and also forgiveness and grace for perpetrators. Now, I want to back up to 2 Samuel 11 and just read the first couple verses to you. Uh, As the story begins, this is what we get. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. So this is very ominous and foreboding because the people were expecting that the king would go out before them to fight their battles. Yet here in verse 2, one evening... As David remains at home, he gets up from his bed. He walks around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. She was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David said, go and get her. So something is askew in David's life already. We know there's all this idle time. Maybe he's given to self-pity or despair. We're not sure, but we know he's already abdicated some of his responsibilities. And the writing is so terse to get the point across. Who is she? She is beautiful. I want her. Go get her. Sin, you know, that word, it sort of has already landed in the dustbin of culture, and you may only hear it in church these days, and even when you hear it, it sounds a little bit outmoded and arcane, unless, of course, it directly affects you. Uh, You become the victim of another person's evil, of old-fashioned sin, and this story kind of gives us the anatomy of sin. And if you pair it with James's letter to the church in the New Testament, you get this amazing description of the anatomy of sin, of what happens in our life. And I pick it up in James 1, verses 14 and 15. He says this, Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. I want to unpack that for just a second. Our own evil desires drag us away. Evil desire. Firstly, there's nothing wrong with desire. God created pleasure. But it's when those desires spill over God's designs that they drag us away. Away from what, you might ask? away from the relationship with God that we are designed to enjoy, from intimacy with God, to have God's affection set upon us and God's love lavished on us. And then we're enticed. And you may say, well, enticed to what, you ask? Well, to consider that this love is insufficient grounding for our life. So what do we do? We must go somewhere else to find control or comfort or release or acceptance or approval or affirmation or belonging. We must find someone else to tell us that we're beautiful or that we have what it takes. And then after this desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. In other words, we, we miss the mark. We fall short of being the person that God has called us to be. And so in Scripture, sin is not just breaking God's law, but it's breaking God's scale. God becomes miniature in our life, no, no longer uh, important to us. And then this breaks God's heart. Because sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So in this story... 
Bathsheba becomes pregnant and David becomes a cover-up artist. He hatches a plan to get his hatchet man, Joab, to essentially issue a death warrant to Uriah, putting him on the front lines of the battle. He dies, and then the scripture says, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. It all feels so small and petty, doesn't it? It's a boring story that happens a thousand times over, doesn't it? King David, a famous and powerful man, a petty peeping Tom, a voyeur, an adulterer, a conspirator, a murderer. But what about me? What about you? See, your pettiness may be less consequential than David's, but it really makes no difference. What makes a huge difference is how you respond to it. So in the rest of the story, David is confronted by a friend over his sin. And what does he do? He does a couple things. Firstly, he admits it, that it's wrong. Secondly, he turns away from it. And thirdly, he receives the forgiveness and grace of God. Here's a portion of Psalm 51, the famous psalm that David penned after looking in the mirror He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, cleanse me and I will be clean, wash me and I will be whiter than snow, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice, create in me a clean and pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, there it is, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Brian Stevenson, who founded the uh, Equal Justice Initiative and is a hometown hero of mine who uh, works now in Montgomery, Alabama, fighting against the ills of mass incarceration, uh, this is what he says. He says, uh, no one is beyond redemption Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. That is so true. And Christmas tells the story of the distance God would traverse not to reward good people for being good or even to turn bad people into good people, but to make dead people come alive. Because the reality is the worst thing you've ever done causes us all to die over and over and over again. It's the death of a thousand cuts, the guilt over what I've done, the shame over what I have become. David finishes Psalm 51 with these words, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's acknowledging that there is a joy that comes with the rescue of God, the forgiveness of God through Christ, and there is a grace, a gift of a willing spirit as we return into that relationship. So in conclusion, the gritty good news is that God offers hope and healing to survivors and forgiveness and grace to wrongdoers. In this room, for some, there is shame over what has been done to you. And for others, there is shame over what you have done. And a 22-minute message 
may do a very poor job of conveying that God can offer both hope and healing and forgiveness and grace. But just so you know, this isn't beyond the pale and that Christianity, I think, offers the best resource for being able to accomplish this. And I'd encourage you, if you're not Christian, to take the risk and explore this yourself. But I'd urge you toward Rachel Denhollander's impact statement at Larry Nasser's sentencing. Nasser is the one who used his power and position in gymnastics to prey upon young women. And at the 25-minute mark of this impact statement, and you can watch it on YouTube, uh, she asked the question a couple times, how much is a little girl worth? How much is a little girl worth? And as a, a father of three daughters, I would say the whole world. And then with the ballast of Christian hope and healing, as she addresses Larry Nasser in person, she does not shy away from the evil and the consequences of the evil, and she still offers to him the grace and forgiveness of God in Christ. It's one of the most powerful moments I've ever witnessed. So if Advent is a season of preparation, and there's a direct application to this message. I suppose it's something like this. For some of you, take a courageous next step toward hope and healing. For others of you, take a first step to return to the forgiveness and grace of God. Jesus, because of what has been done to him on our behalf, has the capacity to say both you are forgiven and you are healed. Let's pray together. God, as we are met by you at this table, uh, would we be reminded, Lord Jesus, that uh, what is on offer to us is a, a deep healing and a full cleansing. Um, for the fact of the matter is, um, there is no straight line between uh, good and evil. Uh, good and evil reside um, in all of the hearts in this room. And for what has been done to us, uh, we need hope. And for what we have done, we need grace. And this table offers both. So we simply say thank you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.